That's it. That's what. What's the idea? Well, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's the big idea, Egghead? What's the big idea? Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. Today on the show, we have Bob Roth. And Bob is the uh, CEO of an organization called the David Lynch Foundation. And the David Lynch Foundation exists to spread the practice of transcendental meditation uh, to people and communities that can use it. And to date, they have trained uh, around 150,000 people uh, this ancient, uh, scientifically backed uh, modality of meditation. And on this podcast, we not only get into some of the science and research that has been conducted on transcendental meditation, uh, but Bob really lays out some of the specifics of what he calls the chronic stress epidemic uh, facing people around the world, but especially people here in America. He talks about their work introducing meditation and mindfulness into schools uh, with returning vets dealing with PTSD, you name it. And you know, one of the things that just really rings true in this episode and about Bob is that he is one of the purest, kindest, most caring people I have ever met. And he is such a servant leader and does this work from a place of having benefited from it himself, seeing it transform his own life, to seeing how it has transformed the lives of so many. Uh, and Mickey and I were fortunate enough to be trained in this meditation modality by Bob about two years ago now. And it has been an incredible practice to introduce into our own lives. Uh, but whether or not you're interested in introducing a new meditation practice, uh, whether you already have an existing one that is working for you, some of the science that Bob talks about with TM specifically, but also in these types of mindfulness practices is going to be relevant and interesting uh, for anyone who is dealing with stress, interested in how your mind works, how to get a better grip of it and your emotional subjective well-being. Uh, it's an amazing episode. Love this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, Bob Roth. All right, I am here in Midtown at the David Lynch Foundation headquarters with none other than Bob Roth. Welcome to What's the Big Idea, Bob? It's great to be here with you, Andrew. Very happy to do this. So Bob has been a, a very important force into my life as well as my wife's life because about a year ago now, he introduced us to Transcendental Meditation and taught us both to meditate and has magnified our meditation to not a daily practice, I'm going to be honest, but into a much, much more consistent and prevalent uh, practice in our lives and it's been incredible and something that we look forward to and, and cherish so much so it's really been beautiful to learn from you to have you in our lives and as I was walking here today you know one of the things I oftentimes like to do with my guests is say like why why was I excited to be with you and the mere thought of not only is Bob a, a master of his craft and his practice but the energy and effervescence and kindness that just comes off of you your very presence is inspiring and i feel like it makes me a kinder person just thinking about how you are in the world so i'm very excited to have you on the show well thank you and i as i told you when you told me that i said when i think of you andrew you have an amazing quality you make me happy something <laughs> no there's something about you that's a very deep that, that hap not a trivial thing but like oh i'm in the presence of goodness i'm a presence of genuineness i'm in a presence of someone who is thrilled with life and it radiates Thank and of you. course, your wife is just a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. You know, she's a force of n nature. 
And so what I'm curious about is, like, so we're talking about kind of the, the essence of your being right here. And we're going to get to strength and stillness. We're going to get to TM. And so I'm curious, did you always show up in the world this way with this kind of kindness, this kind of ease that I now see you expressing? So what appears to be effortlessly? Or maybe maybe a better question to ask would be, what were you like before TM? Well, I think I was, you know, I was born in 1950, so I'm an old guy. And I was just this normal sort of kid. And I was born in Washington, D.C., moved out to San Francisco because my dad got a job in a VA hospital as a doctor. He had been a World War II vet and seen some horrific things on the front lines in World War II as a doctor. But I just grew up as a normal kid, loved sports, loved San Francisco Giants, loved playing Little League and just suburban, not rich, but just sort of middle-class life. And uh, then in the mid-1960s, like 67, something like that, 68, when the whole political upheaval and being in, I grew up in Marin County, which is just north of San Francisco and the whole Haight-Ashbury thing and the drugs and the um, riots over free speech at Berkeley, at Mario Savio, then I had a sort of a political awakening and I became very politically minded and I became very socially aware of inequities in the world and I became very driven and I worked for Bobby Kennedy as a volunteer in high school and then I saw him speak in San Francisco four days before he was assassinated and his death, is this answering your question? 100%. Okay, his death um, had a, prof- it was like the first person close to me as if that ever died and it was traumatizing. And I resolved when I went to college at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley in 1968, that I would become a U.S. senator like Bobby Kennedy and change the world. And so that Bob, the Bobby, Bob then, me then, was a person who was, I think, well-meaning and driven and couldn't understand why people were not upset by inequities and injustices. They could just go on with their life. But I was, what I knew to be uh, that politics was my future and that, you know, these institutions started to just to dissolve, you know, and it just, they were all going. Religion, institutions of religion were going, and faith in politics, faith in government, faith in everything, all the things was just dissolving, and I would just, even the idea of changing the world by legislation, it sort of became... Uh, to me, baseless, because I just saw at Berkeley the polarity in in politics, and I knew even then that politics was never going to heal the soul of the nation. Mm. So then there was a, I know it's a long answer, but... Please keep going, I love it. It shifted to, okay, you can't change, so I always wanted to make a better world, that was the way I was raised, my parents were that way, but I thought, okay, how about one at a time? How about education? How about write an educational curriculum that kids could you know could be used in schools all over the country, all over the world, that would give kids tools to help them navigate an increasingly unjust and stressful world. And I remembered the quote from William Butler Yeats, who said, uh, "Education shouldn't fill fill the bucket; it should light a fire." Hmm. So. I'm going to school full-time, working full-time, and I'm almost, almost done answering your question. Working full-time, going to school full-time, riots, literally. I was living in a house two blocks from Berkeley campus, and there were tanks parked outside my door because of the Vietnam War. So it was like being in war, and people were getting shot at a place called People's Park, which was a vacant lot. And I was stressed, and I'm also a skeptic. 
So there was a lot of bizarroville stuff going on at Berkeley at the time. I mean, just wackadoodle. I wasn't interested in a religion. I wasn't interested in a sect. I wasn't interested in, you know, blowing my brains out with drugs. I just wanted to make a better world. And there was a guy who I really respected who was doing something called transcendental meditation. Wasn't even a word in my vocabulary, but there was something cool about him. You would have really liked him. <laughs> You'd have felt that. And uh, I asked him about it. I said, I don't believe in any of that stuff. And he held up a pencil or a pen. He said, dropped it. He said, you don't have to believe in gravity for the pen to fall. You'll have to believe in this meditation for the benefits. So I learned it. And Andrew, to an almost done with your question, um, one of my first meditations, the thought came to me, oh, I, uh, this is a tool I'm going to teach those kids. And so that was June 28th, 1969. And now 50 years later, I work with David Lynch, the filmmaker, and we have a foundation that's brought the meditation to over a million kids. And I am a better person because of meditation. So what became clear to you in that moment? And I think it speaks to the type of person you are, that the second that you tapped into something that was beneficial to you or important to you, your mind immediately went to, I can't wait to share this. Um, which I think is like one of the best streaks I see in entrepreneurs and how they run their entrepreneurial track is they just see what helped them, what's working for them, and how can they share that with people who could also benefit from it. So what, what became clear in that meditation that you knew you wanted to share with the kids you were supporting? That there's a vertical dimension to life, that there's a, tr there's a transcendent level to life, that there's something, you look up the word uh, transcendence, in the dictionary, and it says, beyond ordinary human limitations. Before I thought, oh, the way you make change in the world is by sort of rearranging the chairs on the <laughs> Titanic. Sure. Oh, you give these people money and take money away from those people, or you, or you change that to this, or you move that, or you have anything, even organic food, all that stuff. I, I became a vegetarian at that time. But it was all sort of, for me, moving on a horizontal level, and that first meditation of experiencing that deep, deep inner silence that I never knew existed. And it, again, it wasn't a religion sort of, it wasn't some religious experience. It was physiological. The thought came, even on a nascent thought, oh, that is an experience that should be shared because it's universal. You don't have to, it's not like it's a philosophy you have to adopt and I disagree with, oh, I'm a, a, a an Advaitist in, you know, in Vedic philosophy or I'm a Christian or I'm a, a transcendentalist or I'm a cynic or I'm an atheist. It had nothing to do with that, but mm. it was a transcendent experience. And that, for me, I thought, oh, that is something. Because it addressed the problems of stress at the same time. Totally. It, it reminds me of something that uh, one of my mentors in the world of men's work told me once when he said, there's a difference between actualization and realization. And he said, actualization is using your resources, abilities, network to create things, to do and he said, realization is kind of the recognition of a more fundamental truth about what is that liberates new energy or capacity beautiful, to, to beautiful. do things. Yeah. yeah. And sounds like that, right? Yeah, and yeah. It was like an, it was a tremendous aha experience because I never and when I teach people TM, transcendental meditation, often afterwards, particularly some older people who've seen it all and done it all, they said, I never knew that that experience I mean, you can have 
you can have uh, live in, stay in one hotel and stay in a fancier hotel. You know, you can have one sexual experience. You can have a better sexual. You know, you can do more. But this was of another scale. This wasn't more of something. This was everything of the depth of life. It was a, an experience of, of transcendence that poets have talked about throughout time and scientists and great people and that we seek. You know, you hold a newborn child in your arms. There's a transcendent moment. Mm. Oh, my God, this is me. You know, this is created by me and my wife. And it's incomparable. Or playing music or listening to music. So it was a transcend, bringing the transcendent into the stressed modern life in a, in a universal way that has got nothing to do with isms. That's what I decided to take on. And the last 50 years have been extraordinary because I focused on putting a science behind that. Yeah. And I, and I really do want to make sure that we're going to come back and talk so much about the science because Whatever. I'd love that you do that. No, it's really, it's yeah. fascinating to me. But while we're, we're in this kind of stage of your transition into discovering TM and, and what really registered as something so important that you were ready to dedicate your life to, I'm curious, you mentioned that you were trained in TM. So you met this, this person at UC Berkeley, right? Who was doing... Actually, I was working... That's right in the book. I was working at a Swenson's ice cream parlor (laughs) and just giving away ice cream for free was my nature. And there was this guy, Peter Stevens, who was... uh, I don't know, he had a master's degree in landscape architecture, something from Tufts, and he was out there just hiking the Berkeley Hills and just taking a break. And there was something extraordinary. You know, you just knew about him. He wasn't weird. He wasn't he was humble and kind and bright, shiny, just, and good. And uh, I, I was like that. I liked, I liked that. There was so many people with shticks and selling and hyping and pushing or fighting. And so he just inspired me to want to learn it. And then I went over to the TM Center in Berkeley and, and learned from a teacher like I taught you. Yeah. And so, and what was your journey through the depths of, so you went to the center in Berkeley and you learned how to meditate and then what ended up taking you to India? Even before that, yeah. I want to talk for a moment about the dark times before I learned to meditate. Please, yeah. Because, so here I am in high school, politics, and I was the editor of my school newspaper and, you know, leading the charge and leading the revolution as if, whatever, as a 17-year-old kid. And then going to Berkeley, and the first year in college is very disorienting anyway. It's very confusing anyway for people. But this was because of what was going on in the world and in my own life, because I saw my future as, okay, I'm going to I'm going to be this Bobby Kennedy type figure, sort of demagoguery, you know, Bobby Kennedy. And um, then it all, and then it was left with nothing. It was a very dark time, very dark time, because there was no no frame of reference. You know, there was no nothing to hold on to outside. And so I remember being, and then realizing, because I had smoked marijuana and taken drugs, but then I thought, I don't want to la- take drugs, laugh, learn something, and then come off of it. I want whatever it is. If there's a darkness there, I want to know what it is. Where did it come from? And why can't I just sit by myself in my own skin and be happy? Just sit. Just be happy. So I really embarked on this thing to know myself, even intellectually. So there were dark times. And I remember feeling one time particularly down because I didn't see anything outside that was particularly satisfying to me. Mm. And I called my sister who was there. And older sister, and she was a master student, and she said, "Oh, you ought to come by for lunch." 
and with her boyfriend. And it, there was a moment because I was contemplating going the other direction, and that was a pivotal moment. She really, uh, her love, mm. really had a, a a moment of caring. And then, like three days later, I learned to meditate. Mm. So what got me from that, so I learned to meditate. I'm a student at Berkeley. Um, I meditated for a year. I went to Humboldt State College, which is in Northern California, for in August 1970. And Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, who was a great meditation teacher, was doing a course, a summer-long sort of intensive for a 2,000 college students. One thing I oftentimes like to do on the show is that because he's such a, a prominent figure in the world of, of meditation and, and consciousness, um, could you just quickly, for people who may have heard that name but not really understand who Maharishi Mahesh Yogi Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Yogi. So Maharishi Mahesh Yogi became well known in the late 60s because the Beatles went and learned meditation from him in 1967 uh, in Wales and then uh, then he had a course in Rishikesh, India in 1968 where all f- three of them, I don't think, you know, all four of them went and then Ringo had to leave early um, where they studied for a month. And uh, they wrote the White Album there and they, you know, huge awakening and that was a great album. So, but Maharishi himself was a physicist. He had been trained as a physicist in India and then in 1940 or something, he had a chance to study with the greatest scientist of meditation at the time, his name was Brahmananda Saraswati, known Gurudev in India. Scientists from all over the world came and studied with him. So Maharishi was with him for 13 years, and then in 1959, he came to the U.S. to begin teaching this meditation all over the world, I mean, in the U.S. and all over the world. And the first thing he did, and we won't dwell on it now, is he went to... uh, met with scientists at Harvard Medical School and UCLA Medical School and said, you should really research this meditation because it has health benefits. So I studied with him, and then in 1972, I spent five months in a course with him and became a teacher of Transcendental Meditation. And then over the next 40 years, I spent a lot of time coming and going around him in India, in Europe, in the U.S. And he was a a mentor and a grandfather figure, and a uh, 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 yeah, it was quite an impact. What did you see in him? That you talked about, yeah. It was a wonderful experience. In 1975, I was, he, he was doing a series of conferences in uh, Europe, and it was on science and consciousness. And this one in particular, he, had, he was in the middle, and on the right were three Nobel laureates, a quantum physicist, um, A.C. Josephson, and then another man, Prigogine, who was a, quantum, it was a Nobel laureate in biology, and another person. And on his left was a top Catholic priest, um, a rabbi, and a Muslim cleric. And they were talking about truth. And they were talking about deep truths. And they were talking about how, you know, when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you, or it says in Isaiah, be still and know that I am God. And then quantum physics talks about a unified field that underlies everything. And there was this back and forth, and Maharshi was in the middle, sort of moderating between both languages, same experience, but both languages. And, um, I mean, same experience, different languages. And uh, I thought, this is a conversation that could have been going on during Plato's time, during Confucius, 
during anybody in the past. It was just universal truths of life. Hmm. Nobody's shtick, just what do we know from the ancient and the modern? And I had the experience of, well, that Maharshi himself was just giving voice to what the wise throughout the ages have been saying. And what I love most about him is he said, it's not my knowledge, this is ancient, eternal. So I, I love the universality of that and the, and the fact, the timelessness of, of him and his knowledge. Mm. And so at what point in your life did you realize that this was your calling and what you were going to dedicate your life to? Well, I had a dad who was a, you know, a Jewish father who wanted me to be a doctor. I was the oldest son. He wanted you to be Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, no, he wanted, actually wanted me to be a doctor. Yeah. Um, but then I could be Bobby Kennedy. Um, and he really wanted me to either go to law school or medical school. But the thing is, my dad was a healer. He was a doctor. My mom was an educator, and I was interested in politics. And I explained to him, I said, here's something, this meditation technique that is cutting-edge healthcare cutting edge education and could be scaled and turned into something that could be you know beneficial for everybody and i said it's really fulfilling you know the word dharma yeah yeah so dharma is the action that upholds you know like you have a dharmic work or you have a dharmic relationship you feel really good i said it's like my dharma i i i get to be think globally I get to bring his tradition of healthcare, making people healthy, my mom of education, starting with young people. So that was, you know. That was it. Yeah. And so could you introduce us a little bit to the practice of transcendental meditation and how it differs from other meditation modalities and practices and where it comes from and, sure. and how, yeah. By the way, this is a great interview. Thank I'm you. Very, I'm very fortunate. I get to be looking, staring across at this wonderful guy here, this great soul. Well, you, so as I'm looking into your eyes, I can't help but have this this feeling. Of, so I, I practice this modality called gestalt communication. And one of the things that they talk about is the idea of a relational meditation. Or like if you think about, as I know, mindfulness is just like the awareness of you know, right. the sensations of your body and your mind. And, and relational meditation can be these moments where you're present with yourself and also present with another. And so I'm sitting here with, with Bob Roth talking about transcending. And I feel these moments when we're connecting eyes where I'm, you know, we're, we're doing that. There's yeah, yeah. something where, yeah. yeah, to another state that's really, that's really powerful. So thank you for saying that. Yeah. So I like to use, you've heard me use this in the past, Andrew. I like to use the analogy of an ocean where you're on the, a little boat and you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean or Pacific or wherever, Indian Ocean, and all of a sudden there's these giant 30, 40, 50 foot high waves and huge waves, little boat, and you could look up and about to be engulfed and you could think, oh my God, the whole ocean is in upheaval. But if you do a cross section, you realize the ocean is over a mile or two or three miles or more deep. So while the nature of the ocean can be turbulent on the surface, the nature of the ocean at its depth is pretty darn silent. So I use that as an analogy for the mind. The surface of the mind is the waves, the tsunami, some active thinking mind. I like to, some people call it the monkey mind. I like to call it the gotta, 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 gotta mind. Gotta do this, and I gotta do that, and I gotta call him, and I gotta call her, and I gotta make a list, find the list, make a new list, gotta slow down, gotta get going, gotta get to sleep. So all the gottas, and it's a natural human desire to say, wow, I'd like to have some inner calm, some inner clarity, some inner focus, and the operative word there is inner. And the question is, is there such a thing as an inner? And if so, how do you get there? And that's the realm of meditation. Meditation writ large, bring equanimity and power to the mind. And they used to think that all meditations were the same. 
but according to research, now brain research, they understand there's three basic types. One is called focused attention. And the people who are listening to this, I'm sure, have tried different types of meditation. You'll line up. Um, focused attention has the assumption that the mind is a monkey. And that if, uh, like, if you want to have a calm ocean, waves are the disruptor of calm, so stop the waves and you have a calm ocean. If you want to have a calm mind, thoughts are the disruptor of calm, stop the thoughts, you have a calm mind. Very difficult to do their own, by their own uh, uh, description. A lot of effort. When you do that, it creates something called gamma brain waves, which are 20 to 50 cycles per second. Your brain working really hard. Second type, so I'm explaining the differences. Please. Second type of meditation is called open monitoring. Many mindfulness techniques are involved in this. This is teaching us to be in the present. The approach or the philosophy there is not that thoughts themselves are the disruptor of calm, but it's often the content of thoughts. So if you have a thought about a guy named Joe and you don't know anybody named Joe, it doesn't disrupt anything. But if you have a thought about a guy named Joe and Joe done you wrong 10 years ago, and now you think about Joe, you get tense. Mm. Open monitoring teaches us to be in the present. Don't be 10 years ago. Be in the present moment. Be mindful now. It teaches what's called dispassionate observation. Observe your thoughts, your breath, your moods, your feelings, your actions, dispassionately, witness. When we do that, it creates something called theta brainwaves, which are four to eight cycles per second. And Andrew, those are the those are the brainwaves when you walk into a library and you see somebody or someplace and you see somebody thinking deeply about someone. It's not like just daydreaming up there on the surface. It's like they're following their thoughts. They're thinking deeply, and there's a silence about them. Those two approaches, sorry this is taking so long. Please, take yeah. all the time. Okay. This is fascinating. Those two approaches, focused attention, open monitoring, are called cognitive approaches to meditation. Cognitive means pertaining to your thoughts, your moods, your feelings, your behavior, pertaining to the waves. The third type is called self-transcending. And self-transcending includes transcendental meditation. And in transcendental meditation or self-transcending, we recognize there's a vertical dimension to the mind, that we feel things deeply. It's not just what's up here on the surface. We feel things deeply. We know deeply. We love deeply. We hurt deeply. We have intuition. Somebody comes to you and they're pitching an, a business idea to you, and I'm sure people are doing it all the time, and they give you five different reasons why you should do it. And on a quiet level of your intuition, it doesn't feel right. Hmm. You say, uh, right? I don't think so, Jack. So there's a vertical, we understand there's a vertical dimension. In self-transcending, we hypothesize that there's a level far deeper than that. Hmm where the mind is already perfectly settled and peaceful and wide awake and unbounded, infinite. It's there, but we've lost access to it. And so in transcendental meditation, we understand the waves are by the surface of the ocean is choppy, but the depth of the ocean is silent. The surface of the mind is turbulent, but the depth of the mind silent. And so transcendental meditation gives access to that effortlessly and when we do that, there's a complete constellation of changes that take place in your brain and body, nervous system that they don't see at any other time. 
You get alpha one brain waves, which are eight to ten. Is this interesting? This is okay. super fascinating. Okay. Yeah, eight to ten cycles per second, which is your brain when it's settled and wide awake. Mm-hmm. Like you could hear a pin drop. You're you're not settled in a sleep. You could hear a pin drop, which is completely awake. There's a hormone called cortisol, which is a stress dangerous stress hormone. You get a good night's sleep, cortisol levels drop ten percent. During twenty minutes of TM, they drop thirty to forty percent. Too much cortisol leads to Alzheimer's when we're older. It leads to, it weakens the immune system. When you're stressed, you get sick more often. It's a terrible thing. And cortisol levels go down more during TM than anything else. So anyway, those are the three different types. And you can ask me the mechanics, but yeah. I'll, I'll stop talking. For no, I, I, so there's, there's two tracks that I want to explore now from there. And that was a beautiful breakdown. And it was very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, and so I'm curious about... Um, where TM comes from and the actual lineage of it. So before we get into the mechanics of how it is delivered and, and how you even taught us, um, where does it come from? Because there's a very particular kind of mechanism for which we it's, it is kind of delivered and taught. And so where does it where did it come from originally? So it comes from the ancient Vedic tradition and the, the uh, modern sort of um, European-centric explanation of Vedic is, oh, it's just Hinduism which is about as superficial as you can get. Hinduism is 2,500 years old. Vedic knowledge predates Hinduism by thousands and thousands of years. It's not an ism. It predates Buddhism, Judaism, all the isms. Mm. It's a basic science of life. So you have Ayurveda. Ayurveda is the science of healthcare. You have Stupachaveda, which is like feng shui. It's a science of architecture. And you have yoga which is the science of exercise, and you have transcendental meditation, which is the science of consciousness, science of the mind. So its origins date back, I like to say, before people arbitrarily drew lines around countries. Yeah. So it's a, just all the way back, but it's been passed on from teacher to student for thousands and thousands and thousands of years through this Vedic tradition. So was there an individual founder of transcendental meditation? No, they just sort of say it just goes back and, you know, just back the beginning of, time so that you know they'll cite some great teachers sure. vyasa and different teachers but the the when maharishi was asked about it it's just it's just no one knows but someone along the way like someone along the way cognized that this herb or this leaf is good for that disease and also you know that sort of thing so someone along the way cognized mantras sounds and this ability to transcend and then it's just been passed on always in an oral tradition, never out of a book, and now today never taught in a mass way. It's always individually taught by a trained teacher. And so could you tell us a little more about how it has been taught and the, the depth of that tradition and why it's so important for how this has continued to, to propagate and spread? So either now or later, can I talk about the, me- the mechanics of how it works? Do you yeah. want me to do that now, or do you want me to talk about why don't we? Why don't we go into it? You can talk about how it's actually delivered and then the mechanics of, of okay. how it works. So the out. way the technique is taught, it's taught individually, like I taught you and your wonderful wife. It takes about an hour a day over four consecutive days. And in that four days of instruction, you're given a mantra, which is a word or a sound that has no meaning. That just takes about a minute. And then for the four days, the full four days, the instruction is how to use that properly, how not to strain, how not to concentrate, how not to control the mind, how to have a transcendent experience, which is 
uh, facilitated by innocence. Sadly, I remember talking to this one New Yorker guy, and he said, well, if this thing's so effortless, why does it take four days? And I said, <laughs> we're New Yorkers. We don't even know what the word effortless means anymore. You know, we're pushing from the minute we get up in the morning. We're pushing and pushing and pushing. Got to get the kids out the door. Got to get out there. Da, 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 push, push, push. Um, so there's four days to learn. But it's not like, a, oh, just give me the mantra. And then it's not like an aspirin. It's a vehicle. The mantra is a vehicle to take us from that surface, agitated, got to, got to, got to level of the mind to that deepest, transcendent level of the mind. And the way that that works, because a lot of people say, and um, I study... Uh, I studied mindfulness. I studied all these different types of, of approaches out of interest and desire. I teach transcendental meditation. I find it, for me, easiest to do and accessible. But there's this assumption, and this is an interesting point that Maharishi brought out. There's this assumption that the mind wanders aimlessly. And if you really want to have a calm mind, because the texts of the Patanjali Yoga Sutras and these different texts of meditation say the result of meditation is a calm mind. So, okay, I want to have an equanimity of mind, sama, evenness, samadhi, evenness. If I want to have that, i got to get rid of thoughts. And my mind wanders like a monkey, so I have to stop it. Well, Maharishi's insight was the mind is not just this horrible, this wandering monkey. Actually, the mind seeks happiness. The mind seeks Knowledge, beauty, love, intimacy, pleasure, delicious. The mind is drawn to something more satisfying, given the opportunity. You're sitting in a room, and you're doing just some mindless task, you know, balancing something on a computer. In the other room, miraculously, the most beautiful music, incredible music you've ever heard in your life comes on. Where does your attention go? I'm in the room. That's right. Or you go on a vacation and you bring two books and one book you couldn't read. It was a travesty that it was ever published. Can't read a word. The other book, phenomenal. Hours go by. So what is that? Your attention drawn to that music, your attention absorbed in the book. Given the opportunity, the mind will always be drawn spontaneously and effortlessly to something more satisfying. Hmm. Now, it may be that this horrible music is annoying you. You have to turn it off but always will go to something more satisfying. And inside is incredibly satisfying. So in transcendental meditation, we close the eyes, we sit up comfortably. You don't have to sit in some posture that makes your knees want to break or something like that. You sit up comfortably and you set up the conditions for the mind to be drawn, to have an inward direction, like you teach a child how to dive. And you say, honey, you know, bend over, lean over like that, set up the conditions, gravity takes over. So in TM, we just set up the conditions, and on its own, your mind is your attention is drawn inward. And as your mind settles down, because your mind and body are one, your body gains a state of rest deeper than sleep. So when we teach a person to meditate, we give them a mantra, and then we teach them how to use that mantra without any effort. Sometimes people say, oh, it's just a mantra meditation. You just have a mantra and you repeat it. That's all TM is. Not true at all hmm. is a delicacy to the whole thing. Yeah, I think that's even from my own experience of being in those four days and learning how to navigate the mantra and, and having you as a sounding board to talk about a relationship with it and you know that awareness of it coming back to the mantra and at times like how the 
the way that it was said, you know, it was almost kind of like cognitively expressing something in a way that I'd never done before at a volume, that, you know, in my mind at different levels. And so it, uh, and when you talk about it as a sound complex, I think that's something I wanted to reiterate, right? That there is no meaning to the mantras whatsoever. No, if you had a meaning to the mantra, then the you'd be thing. stuck up on the surface what on is? the gotta, gotta, gotta level. Gotta figure that out. It's done for its frequency, its vibration sound. And um, the thing is, we learn how to use the mantra like a, like a faint idea. And sometimes people say, well, what do you mean a faint idea? And I say, well, you know, it's Sunday morning. You're at, the, you're at home with the family or something, friends, and you have the thought very clear, I'm going to the store. So you get your wallet, your purse, you go walk to the store. Ten blocks, you walk to the store. You turn left, you turn right, you window shop, you talk to people. Twenty minutes later, you're at the store. Now, you have not been repeating clearly in your mind, and we talked about this before, mm-hmm. I'm going to the store, and I'm going to the store, and I'm going to, like a repetition, going to the store, and if a thought comes in about lunch, whoa, no, 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 store, 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 store. No, there's a vertical dimension to the mind. That thought, I'm going to the store at a deep level, is just an idea. It's just an intention. And that's closer to the truth. That's close to that transcendent, close to that uh, intuition level. And so we learn how to think the mantra on any of those from the clearest concrete on the surface. There's just a faint idea. And using the mantra like that allows the mind to transcend. Yeah, I think one of the most important words that I got out of our time together, and I don't even want to say words, one of the most important ideas and ways of being was that idea of, of less effort, of effortless. And that idea that, again, at least in my own experience, and even before I came to you, I was, I was primarily listening to guided meditations. And you know, I had convinced myself that I could create calmer states by listening to these things and practicing this and then doing specific types of you know, circular breathing and whatever that may be. And so what was so challenging about it and why that was so rewarding was, again, was the idea of like, Less effort is this. It's just less effort. Anything that you're doing, less, 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 the, less, the, less, and less. And the thing is, it's not, it's everything in life, we have this thing. And even many of these meditation approaches of a lot of effort is there's somehow there's the ideal meditation. There's like there's a perfect way to hit the chord on the piano. There's a perfect way to swing a tennis racket. There's a perfect way to cook lasagna. I mean, there's certain, and you, and you nailed it and it came out great and it's perfect and you won or this or that. Now we have, and that's great, but it also has comes often with a, a residue of stress or anxiety or in work. I want to do better today. I want to be better with my kid. I want to be better at work. I push myself better today than yesterday. Great. But it comes with a residue in transcendental meditation. It's 180 degrees opposite. I was trying to explain it to this one kid once and he, Cut me off. He said, I can do better than you, Bob. And he said, you're holding a tennis ball. And let's say you're on a balcony of a hotel 10 floors up. And you want the ball to be on the ground. 100 feet down, you do one thing. You loosen the grip. And then gravity takes over. Yeah. You just set up the conditions for the nature for nature to take over. So the mind is net. Na- I'm giving Andrew a little... Uh, refresher on his oh, meditation. It's, it's the yeah. best. I'm the loving na- every second of it. <laughs> the nature of the mind on its own is to be drawn to something more satisfying. We set up the conditions so that that attention can be drawn inward on its own. Any effort, any effort just stops the process. So, and that's the beauty of this thing. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the analogies that I remember you sharing, I don't remember if it was in one of our 
or actual sessions or if it just came up but you were talking about and, and I'm and I'm gonna transition over into the foundation and your work with with students and with the now oh, can I talk about some of the new updates with the, amazing and new work with the VA that's coming up but you talked about working here in some of the inner city schools in New York and how it was almost easier for kids to drop into these states initially because they had no reference point or idea that they were doing it wrong. Whereas as adults, it's like this idea that we had to be doing something, and if it wasn't the specific way that it was taught that it was wrong, which made it more challenging to, to transcend. No, we've been in, it's a funny thing. Somehow it just, it, it, it's still in the culture. Like you'll talk to a little six-year-old kid, and you know the mom will say, you ever heard of meditation? And the little kid will sit cross-legged and put her, her, her you know, arms out and go, ohm. Now, where does that six-year-old kid get that? Is obviously from the media or something, these cartoons or whatever. But the fact is, we have this very unfortunate association that if we have thoughts in meditation, we're failing because somehow thoughts are bad and we shouldn't be thinking or we should have positive thoughts or guided meditation. And the fact is, there is no bad guy in, in meditation and thoughts are, not, thoughts are just the expression of my life. Every thought I have, good, bad, ugly, they're all an expression of my life, like bubbles emerging from a sandy bottom to the top of a pond. I don't have to get rid of any, suppress, repress, move away any aspect of my life to settle down to the source of my life. I just set up the conditions and my mind, which usually goes out through the senses. So my mind, I want to be happy. Great, I go out to the senses. Now, that person's going to make me happy. That job's going to make me happy. That restaurant's going to make me happy. To degrees, that vacation spot's going to make me happy. That career is going to make me happy. Maybe, and first a little bit, but maybe I have a great relationship with my wife, but I'm suffering at work. So there's always yes and no's. The fact is, inside, it's no yes or no, it's all good. That throughout time, they've said true happiness lies within. And that transcendent level of life is ginormous. It's huge. Mm. And when, ginormous is a word, it's gigantic. We when say ginormous. Ginormous. Sounded, sounded great. Okay, good. Go for it. Ginormous. When we have that, it's like inside, I'm okay. And if my wife is having a tough time or if my wife, something is there or work, and fine. I want it, but it's, I'm not dependent. If I'm dependent on this work for my self-esteem or the way I look or the way my, this person treats me, I'm in for an up and down life. If I'm hoping that all those things outside are going to make me happy. Mm. But if I have, we were talking before we started community. If I have contact with my, my own self, like we said, when I was thinking about Oh, I, when I was, I was thinking about Andrew, you know, Andrew, and I think, oh, when I'm around him, I feel great. But now Andrew's gone. Well, then, oh, now I feel lack. But when I'm established, the contact is with inside, mm. then it's just more wonderful to be with Andrew. But when Andrew has to go, because he's got a family, then I'm still really good. That's what we want. We want that relationship with our own transcendent self. It's so interesting, and, and even I, I just had this moment of going back to the moment that you talked about that dark time in your life and how it was that external moment of connection with your sister that kind of brought you yeah. out of that space. And it's, you know, again, that idea of when, as I've thought about transcendence, like really my entire life was the idea of connecting myself to something greater than myself, but that's been a community or a cause or a relationship or, you know, a sense of purpose 
And it's true, right? It's the idea that those things are can be temporary. Probably. Relative. They, yeah, they're totally relative. Everything in the outside world, in the ancient texts, they talk about relative and absolute. Everything in the outside world is waves. It starts, it rises, it falls. It starts, it rises, and falls. And that, that can my life can be that way. My job can be that way. Relationships can be that way with friendships. Oh, yeah, we were close, and I don't know what happened. You know, somebody you knew. and But inside is said to be absolute. It's unchanging. It's a unified field. Hmm. And that is a field of unlimited energy happiness. That's what they say. And meditation throughout time, when it was not wrapped in garb of philosophy or religion or just meditation as meditation, gave access to that. The problem had been over the centuries is that experience got wrapped up in, oh, it's that's a religion and it's that thing. It's like if jumping jacks were practiced at a Jewish school then suddenly or Catholic school, suddenly jumping jacks are Catholic. Jumping jacks are jumping. Does people still do jumping jacks? <laughs> Sit-ups. <laughs> jumping jacks. It's not. Meditation has nothing to do with it. It transcends that. Yeah. So it's a great thing. And, you know, one of the things that I think is important to note here as well is, is how Bob has brought that scientific rigor to the expansion of, of meditation in the world. And, you know, when we first walk into Bob's office, you will see him more than likely in a very dapper suit and not, you know, bearded up with some mala beads. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with malas. But, um, and so I'm curious, for someone who has been so kind of entrenched in, in this practice and, and delivering it and also really seeing like what's on the forefront of the scientific research and what we now know to be true about meditation. You talked about this with uh, Maharishi and, and the exploration of truth. And now what is it that we know to be true about meditation and how has science been really kind of uh, promoting the advancements of meditation in the world? Well, I think um, every time you ask a question, I think about 300 answer different things I want to comment <laughs> on. Um, I remember when I was in high school, oh no, college, my first year in college at Berkeley, I vowed there's two things I would never do, wear a suit and ask people for money. And now I run a foundation, <laughs> which, <laughs> and we were raise, always raising money so we can give meditation for free to kids and veterans. Yeah. So, and I like to dress in a way wherever I go that I am, the way I'm dressed is invisible. I just look how, so when you sometimes see me, I've just come from meetings at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. We're working, I want to, we're working on a plan. I'd like to teach a million Syrian refugees to meditate, teach them TM. Mm. Well, so when I go over there, I don't need to be dressed up and whatever. I just dress so they don't see me. They don't, yeah. they don't see how I'm, I just want to talk. I don't want anything to get in the way of what my message is. Yeah. So, um, well, I, that, huh? can I, can I actually ask sure. a different question that I think sure. might make it easier? So for the people who are listening here, if they're going to walk away, let's say with like three statistical truths about meditation, how it impacts the body. You talked about, gamma waves, theta waves, you talked about reduction of cortisol. What are the statistics that you think are most important for people to look at meditation as one of the more important things that they could integrate into their lives? We're living in an epidemic of stress. Stress fuels 80 to 90% of all illnesses from the mm -hmm. common cold to cancer and, uh, and heart disease, which takes half the world's population. It now is seen to be the prime cause of Alzheimer's twice as many women as men get Alzheimer's and um, Alzheimer's starts in the 30s the plaque starts building up in the brain in the 30s so it's not like well I don't have to worry about that until I'm 70 so the knowledge of what stress is doing to us is far greater the, the impact than we ever knew before 
So we used to be able to say, eh, stress, tough, just, you know, buck up, just do it, just, you know, quit complaining, just get out there. Well, it's killing us. It's killing our children even more. So I think anytime you look at what would be the value of meditation, uh, two of the three things I would say are related to stress. One is going back to the fact that during transcendental meditation, according to research at Harvard Medical School, published in Science Magazine, the body gains a state of rest twice as deep as the deepest part of deep sleep during transcendental meditation. It doesn't take the place of sleep, but your body gets that deep, profound state of rest. In that state of rest, as I said, cortisol, a 30 to 40% reduction in cortisol levels. Unseen, no, there's no pill that can do it, no exercise. Pills are fine if you need them. Exercise is important, but this is something unique. The second thing I, I think is in the area of the brain, there are, and the, actually the next two things are the area of the brain, but um, of the three, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is your fire alarm in the brain. It's your reactivity center. It's fight or flight. It's the part of the brain. The react, it's just reaction. And it comes about from PTSD. Am I going over? This no, you're okay. great. It comes about through PTSD. I'm on your schedule. Okay. It comes about through PTSD. PTSD um, is caused, the definition, of some traumatic experience. So you could have be in harm's way in combat and a tank blows up and all of your people you're with die, but you and you, what happens then is your amygdala is hyper aroused and you can't sleep and you have no control over your emotions. You have no, no control over your um, executive functioning. You live a perpetual nightmare. Now there's something called complex PTSD. Hmm. Complex PTSD is just growing up in New York City. It's just growing up in 2019, 2020. It's a constant pressure, stress, drumbeat on the news, drum, just constant. And maybe there's a person in the family who's an alcoholic, so you're never sure who you're living with, or maybe there's a big upheaval because a parent died or a job. Those are all things. So what we're seeing now is the symptoms of PTSD are now spreading to the general population. Wow. So what you have is a hyperarousal of the amygdala, which fuels, so you're always anxious. That fuels substance use disorder because you're looking for ways to mitigate that anxiety. It fuels depression. It fuels um, bipolar disorder. It fuels insomnia. It fuels all these disorders and diseases. And the amygdala is at the forefront. So during transcendental meditation, there's a quieting of the amygdala. There's a settling down, of rebooting it to where it should be. We need an amygdala if we're walking down the street and someone's going to chase us or if there's a lion coming after us but or if someone's attacking our family but you want to do it have the energy the amygdala just puts all your energy into fighting or fleeing and then when you're done back to normal but no one's back to normal anymore so the second thing is transcendental meditation reboots the amygdala hmm. the third and i think when we're talking about the positive side of things is uh it wakes up the prefrontal cortex, which is your executive functioning, and that's the part of the brain that's decision-making, planning, judgment, sense of self, ethical reasoning. That's the size of your fist right behind your forehead. It wakes that up. And the other thing, this is a really cool piece of research that I've never really talked about. 
So here's a cool thing, because I love the stuff with meditation in the brain. I love this, and I love setting up conferences where researchers to come, because I think the future, the future is not just getting rid of stress, but if we're going to solve problems of the world of agriculture, you know, food supply and energy and defense and how do we you know secure the sovereign it's going to take human creativity mm-hmm. it's not just this blunt force of let's just blow things out of the water you know bomb people to smithereens or put so much pesticides in our food supply so that to kill off the the bugs and then it destroys our food it has to be some subtler human intelligence that can solve these problems so the parts of the brain that are involved in that the creative part of the brain the innovative part of the brain we used to think, and Andrew's got what I'm about to tell you in spades. Well, you do. Um, we used to think that creativity was like, you know, you say, oh, you're a right hemisphere person? Sure. So you're a right hemisphere person. Oh, and you're a number cruncher, you're a left hemisphere person. We thought it was just, you know, one side is this, the other side is that. Well, it turns out it's not true after all these years. It turns out creativity is not a product of a, hemisphere and you're born right or you're born left hemisphere it's a product of communication connections within networks within the brain Hmm. and there's two main networks that are involved in the creative process the first is the attention network prefrontal cortex that's where you focus where you work hard and you get something done and it takes focus and that's where your brain's really going at it so the researchers some years ago wanted to know, that's okay, that's your brain functioning. Well, what is the brain doing when it's not focused? When it's, they call it task positive. What is the brain doing when it's, um, what does it default to? Yeah. When it's resting. So they came up with this amazing title. They called it the default mode network. <laughs> and that is a com- uh, communication networks from the back of the brain, the middle of the brain, the front of the brain. And that's your past, your present, and the future. And that's, and so that is what your brain defaults to. And they were very dismissive of the default mode network. They thought, that's just a wandering mind. It's nothing good is happening. Well, now they have a new name for it, the imagination network. Hmm. That's the part of the brain where the innovative, cool ideas come from that nobody's ever um, could have imagined. It's not linear. It's when you're taking a hot shower and you get a great idea or you go for a walk or you're playing music and you're just, your brain is just resting. And then it's not just dull and nothing happening. It allows these deep insights to bubble up. So the creative process is usually one or the other. I have the big idea, and then that shuts off, and then I put it to work. Hmm. We know stress shuts down both. So if you're stressed or anxious, then you can't focus, and you, you can't think innovatively. But here's the cool thing, and this is where Andrew comes in, and, and your wife too, Mickey, your wife. The most, they did some studies, the most creative people in the world are people who have both going at the same time. Hmm. People who can innovate while they're focused. And they can focus while they're innovative. There's no boundary. There's no wall between the two. Hmm. And that's what transcendental meditation does. It wake, the research shows it wakes up the, the attention network so we're able to focus. And it wakes up the uh, imagination network at the same time. And that is a life worth living, where you can have, in one meditation, your body gets this deep rest, gets rid of the cortisol, lowers the anxiety, starts sleeping better at night. At the same time, it wakes up the creative networks in the brain. That is a, that's a, that's life. Yeah. 
And that's, and I think, so, and I, maybe that's a, a beautiful transition as we're kind of moving towards, and again, you tell me if you have an hour or you have more. Yeah. Um, so you are the executive director of the David Lynch Foundation. So one of the most legendary film directors, you know, modern history. And um, so does he talk about this practice in terms of his ability to create these, you know, <laughs> truly transcendent kind of films and like in what you're talking about right now? No, he started meditating with a racer head. Oh, that's wow. sometimes, you know, people used to say, oh, meditation, TM, it's going to make you passive. It's going to, you know, you're going to lose your edge. He's got much more edge than he ever had. Hmm. He got much more driving force, much more resilience. He doesn't care what other people think, you know, at the same time. So he can be free to create at the same time, you know, he's he's practical guy. But yeah, he's he says it's been the key to his creative process. Twice a day, dipping down into that transcendent, having the stress be dissolved, waking up those creative imagination networks in the brain, then create true creativity is renewing. It's not like, oh, that, that musician just, the next album was just like the first one. You know, look at the Beatles sure. or Bob Dylan or some of the greats. Yeah. I have to go my generation. <laughs> they just innovated anew and anew and, and, and anew. And so that's what he does. And how did you and David first connect? He was... Uh, meditating and I was going to do a, uh, have a conference in Los Angeles and someone said, Oh, he'd be willing to come down and speak, you know, support what we were doing. And so, uh, we met and we're like the complete opposites and we're like brothers because he's the most abstract <laughs> and I'm the most down to earth. And we traveled all over the world together for 15 years with the David Lynch foundation. We've, he spoken to, uh, hundred different film schools about consciousness, creativity, the brain, transcendental meditation. So I spent a lot of time with him and he's, he's a genius and he's also one of the kindest people I've ever met. Brilliant. And so when you think about the David Lynch foundation and everything that you're doing right now, um, if everything goes right, what does the impact of this organization look like? Say 10 years down the road, it restores the proper place in our education, in our healthcare system, in in uh, um, just in life, transcendence in life. That it shouldn't just be a rare experience that comes for the rare athlete who's talking about the zone, or that rare musician who can you know perform some transcendent music. It restores as a everyone's every human being's birthright. And when you have that experience, it addresses so many in one stroke, so many of the great calamities and concerns of our time. And that is, from a deepest level, the sense of displacement that people feel or disconnect. Even people who are in a, ostensibly they have a, a, a husband or a wife who loves them and they have children and they have everything going for them and yet there's an, an emptiness inside or there's a disconnect inside. And then we mask it with this pill or that pill. It'll never, it'll never address it. So that experience of transcendence fills a person up from inside, mm. and it's universal. So it's not like, well, you know, you love my God, and then you'll be happy, but don't love that God because you're not going to be. It has nothing to do with that. It has just accessing your inner resources, and then it'll be have its place in our healthcare system because eighty to ninety percent of all illnesses are stress based, unnecessary. So you're going to see a, a in time. Uh, money, government money, and rather than filling up addressing all these 
get problems of stress, be able to go into the environment, be able to go into making educational available to more people, to building you know um, money for uh, safer and greener transportation system, the infrastructure. Really and truly, we're wasting so much money in our healthcare system. Each family does that when you're paying your your insurance every month, and companies and schools and governments. So I think it will transform life, and not in a blissy, oh, you utopian hippie Berkeley guy, but on the level of absolutely the way your cardiovascular system functions, your respiratory system functions, your digestive system functions, your limbic system, how we are as human beings, because we've been functioning way beneath our birthright. Hmm. Well, you know, it's uh, when you walked in, you talked about, you said it's all about connection. And I think like in this moment, what I'm just like really realizing again is you also asked me a question before we got on here today and you said, like, what do you love about your generation and what don't you like? And I talked about how I don't like that, how unaware they are, how ignorant they are of how like technology is, is inhibiting their ability to really connect and with other people. And I'd always really thought about connection really as this external activity. And I think again, this idea of, the transcendence not being an external one, but an inward, an internal one. And for the thousands of people all over the globe who are listening, if they've been inspired by this, is there anything else that you would want them to know? Or if they are inspired to follow up, what would you want them to know and where would you tell them to go? I would want them to know that there's more <laughs> there's more there's more to life and I'd want them to go you can go to tm.org or you can go to davidlynchfoundation.org and I'll give you my personal email you can write me and I will help you find a TM teacher I'll answer your questions because being with Andrew is like being with family <laughs> and you're all everybody family so you can write me to Bob and this goes to me this doesn't go to somebody else Bob at davidlynchfoundation.org Bob, B-O-B, at davidlynchfoundation.org, and I'll write you back. Bob, you are uh, a unique experience and literally one of the my very favorite people that I've had the opportunity to, to encounter in the past couple of years. So thank you so much for, for not only what you are doing in the world, but who, who you occur to me as and how you are being. It really is a beautiful thing. And uh, when you guys follow up and we'll have, you know, all the information on the David Lynch Foundation and Bob's work and his most recent book in the show notes. But I highly would encourage you to take advantage of that incredible offer because a chance to even interact with this man on email is uh, is a gift. So, Bob, thank you so much for the time. And thank you, Andrew, for being a great voice of truth and wisdom and kindness in the world. You're Dang. great. You're really great. And Mickey's like the best. <laughs> and your child. So thank, thank you, you so thank much. You. Well, and when can we bring Hero in? He's got to be how old before he can start? Four. Four years old? Okay, so we've got like a year and a half. But, but you guys come back in. Let's meditate together. All right, let's do it. Okay. Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Signing off, guys. <laughs>